This episode of The Concession Stand is brought to you by Blueberry. Blueberry offers the best media hosting, accurate listening stats, and their all-new PowerPress Deluxe Sites, a no-setup WordPress website for your podcast with all the necessary links to share your show with the world built right in. If you currently produce a podcast and are looking for a better media host, or you're looking to start a new one from scratch, head on over to orbitaljigsaw.com slash popcorn to sign up for the best media hosting and a PowerPress Deluxe site and get your first month absolutely free. That's orbitaljigsaw.com slash popcorn, or just use the promo code popcorn at checkout for your first month free. And now, enjoy the show. You're listening to the Concession Stand Podcast on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. From movies and TV to consoles and video games. Don't let your geek flag fly with your host, Nick Howe and Andy Nelson. the concession stand podcast but if you're joining us for the first time we are glad to have you on board for episode number 58 uh-huh. i'm nick howell and sitting across from me as always mr andy nelson how are you sir oh we're getting so close to the holiday season and we're actually in the holiday season but christmas is around the corner hey coming up later in the show we're going to give some spoiler free thoughts on the last jedi uh, James Cameron, Soldier of the Deep, is up to something that doesn't involve either blue aliens or a boat sinking in three dimensions, and one of the biggest stars of Lord of the Rings franchise may be returning as a part of the Amazon show that we've what? been talking about. Yep. But Nick, tell us a little bit more about our network and where people can find us. Well, you can find this show, The Concession Stand, and many other shows across all different genres over at orbitaljigsaw.com. But you can find us, especially over on Facebook, at facebook.com slash official concession stand, or over on Twitter, at concession stand. Come on over, hang out with us, let us know your thoughts on the show on iTunes with a review. You can also leave one on Facebook if you'd like. And if you like what we're doing, hey, it's the holidays, you need some stocking stuffers, all that good stuff, some last-minute gifts... Head on over to orbitaljigsaw.com slash store. Pick up a cheap t-shirt. I think they got them on sale for 14 bucks. I got one. Heading into the holidays, hoodies, phone cases, coffee mugs, all kinds of good stuff over at orbitaljigsaw.com slash store. All right, here we go. Uh, we have been talking about this for weeks. We are finally going to get my favorite person on the planet Earth outside of people that uh, are ma- I'm married to and I have uh, children. Ryan Nelson will be here to talk about something in a second about this movie that he's done, Mercy Christmas, with his wife, Beth Levy Nelson. But before we get to him, let's go ahead and listen to the trailer. Is that eggnog? <laughs> I love up to know that a guy like you didn't make it to a Christmas dinner table. I'm home! Daddy! Oh, I have missed you so much. Boys, it's stocking time! It is so nice to have you three kids together again under this roof. Christmas is my favorite time of year. Bon appetit! Ooh, I love ribs. How do you like my family brisket? supposed to be about warmth and tradition if it's special. I mean, really special. Don't be a white Christmas. Look at me. Yes or no. 
Christmas, bitch. Well, there you have it, folks. The Mercy Christmas trailer. Andy, we've been talking about this for a few weeks now. And finally, finally, yes. we've got the director himself, Mr. Ryan Nelson. It's great to have you finally here in the studio on the Concession Stand Podcast. How are you doing today? Pretty good. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Yeah. Guest on the show. I've known him his whole life. Can you believe that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, it's interesting to, for me personally, a little bit of a personal note here. I've known both of you guys. Uh, let's be clear, for full disclosure, you guys are brothers. Yes. Right. Yes. That's official, right? Yeah, it is okay. totally official. So I've known you guys uh, as far as the for, paternity for, tests say yes. <laughs> <laughs> for like 15 years now. And uh, Ryan, I've always known you as a grip. I'd like to talk about that a little bit too, sure. as well, uh, after we get through here. But um, it's been interesting for me personally to see all of you, both you guys' careers kind of uh, expand as they have. But Mercy Christmas, um, let's come back to that. And how did you get from uh, what you were doing as your, I'll do air quotes and say day job, uh-huh. uh, but your day job is actually in the business, to uh, directing and essentially putting forth Mercy Christmas? What was the genesis of it? Well, you know, uh, the way that I liken it is, um, it's sort of like I wasn't uh, a grip who got a chance to direct. I was a director who had to grip. So. Uh. You know, that's the way I always looked at it. Um, I went to film school in North Carolina, which is where we met Nick. Um, got a directing degree, uh, graduated in 2002. And before graduation even happened, I was already in Los Angeles ready to make magic. And the world was going to, you know, just open up for me and everything was going to be great. <laughs> Yay! Unicorns and rainbows. <laughs> and it happens to everybody, right? Yeah. yeah. So uh, that didn't happen. And uh, <laughs> I, I tried, you know, uh, never quit. And uh, the thing was, I went. I had to figure out what to do next. So I just kept making short films. I made spec commercials, uh, kind of industrial stuff. I shot things for other people, whatever could keep me writing and directing. And then in 2009, uh, Beth and I got married um, and we started writing together. Beth, uh, my wife, Beth Levy Nelson, is the co-writer and producer of Mercy Christmas. And um, we had finished our first screenplay, which is a comedy. And we were looking for our next idea, and I took her home for uh, the first Christmas, which Andy can definitely attest to. When we were growing up, um, our family Christmas was a big deal. Uh, Mom completely decorated the house. There was very specific things down to potholders that had Santa Claus on them and candy dishes and everything. It was always in the same place every year, and the stockings had to come out at a certain time. And it took like a week to put all this stuff out and in the proper place and the the ornaments and like everything was in a tiny, like it was this meticulous thing. But yeah, go ahead. And it was like that for every holiday, but Christmas was uh, mom's favorite. Um, So I took Beth home for her very first Christmas because she's Jewish, and she saw it, and she was flabbergasted by it, but in a good way. Yeah. She loved everything we did. She loved the family dinners. She loved um, the the pomp and circumstance that we kind of put on. She loved the present giving and all that stuff. And then three months later, I went to her family's um, Passover. And that was my first Passover that I'd ever been to. And it was sort of the same stuff, believe it or not, even though, you know, slightly different. That's not a present giving time for them, but sure. food, family, all the same things. And we both walked away from those experiences. And we we're since we're looking for our next idea, we we said... You know, there's something going on here with craziness and family traditions. <laughs> okay. And you toss it into a blender with with mine and Beth's wacky, you know, ideas, and that's where we started Mercy Christmas. Just something we wanted to talk about family traditions, and you know, I always had this idea that I'd been working on a short idea of a guy who got kidnapped on Christmas Eve, and Beth came to that idea and she liked it, and she said, you know, what if they were cannibals? And oh. then, <laughs> that was the end of it, and there you go. 
Oh, man. Well, Spoiler alert, Jeez, yeah. come on. Oh, yeah, thank you. For, <laughs> yeah. We're assuming at this point that you guys have gone and you, you pre-ordered. If you listen to the show, you've pre-ordered and you've seen the film at least three times by now. So, or, And if you haven't, go do it. Yes, we're, we're operating on that assumption. So yeah. no spoiler alerts necessary. So um, one of the things that really hooked me for sure was the the almost the first act of brisket and getting to know him as that kind of office introvert the accounting guy the nerd in the sweater vests and the that typical stereotype but getting you guys did a really good job of getting into his character and really exposing that and kind of in a weird way showing his com, uh, combating between uh, dealing with being that guy but at the same time tr- learning to break out of his shell a little bit Stephen Hubble the actor who plays Michael Brisket. Um, has never acted before ever. Really? He, he's a friend of mine. Where did he come from? Where'd you find him? <laughs> he is a friend of mine. Okay. Uh, I've known him almost uh, as long as I've known Beth, actually. Um, and he and I work together. Um, and if you ever meet him, he's he's a bit of a ham sometimes. And he and and he tells stories. <laughs> and when he tells these stories, they're so elaborate. And he gets so detailed. And his arms start swinging. And, and I just looked at him and I said, you know what? This guy has uh, a soul of a performer in him. And I think he's got something. And when we were writing Mercy Christmas, I used him visually as my um, idea for what Michael Brisket looked like. Okay. And then when it got time to cast the thing, we shot a sh- short two scenes of it to try to get money early on. And we got Steven to do that. And um, we're just like, you know, he did a really good job. And there's, he, I, think, I think he can pull off this movie. And we just said, through caution of the wind, and, and put him in it. And now Steven's actually getting rave reviews. P- everybody pulls his uh, performance out of the movie when they're talking about the movie, and he just won a Best Actor Award at the Portland Underground Film Festival. Awesome. Congratulations. Yeah. So, pretty <sighs> cool. And Andy, what were some of the standout things for you uh, in the film specifically that we can we can throw at Ryan here and for the listeners um, – Maybe get into the the inner workings of of making an independent film. My like thought that. was my thought was to let you kind of talk about the narrative elements, and then uh, having worked behind the scenes a little bit on it, I was I was going to get into that. But um, I want to stick along that casting line. Yeah. So you've got um, the, I think Stephen and uh, is perfectly cast as Michael Brisket, and of course I know him too, but. Uh, it, it's not him. It's not him no. that you see in this movie, which is really kind of strange, and you see him. But I think it's his soul, actually. Yes, I would agree with that. But on the flip side, you've got... Um, and, and the other thing that makes Michael Brisket so special and gets the um, audience into this movie right away is that that guy and that character is somebody that everybody can relate to. Right. You know? But they can also relate to the evil boss that only cares about the work. And then you have this... On the flip side, you have Cole Gleason playing uh, Robillard. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's... You know, every we've been saying it on this show. Uh, how many weeks now? Even the last couple of weeks, every you know hero has to have a good villain, and I think that um, that movie doesn't work as well without Cole playing uh, Robillard the way that he does. Can you talk a little bit about Cole? Sure. Yeah, the, uh, Cole uh, came in to audition for Beth. Beth uh, is does casting, and um, she and a lady named Christine Scally, and then our producer Tarquin Alexander and another lady Karen Ryan all did the casting together, and they each brought their own people. Christine had, had worked with Cole at another point. And brought him in. Uh, so basically, how the casting process worked is the four of them got together. They they whittled everybody down, and then I came in for a producer session where I got to pick out of their whittled down group. I uh, saw I want to say about five or six Robillards, um, and they did a couple scenes right in front of me. Um, and one of the scenes is one of the more intense scenes in the movie. And I know I I knew when we were we were doing the the um, casting that I needed to see if he could pull that scene off, which is the scene in the basement. So I won't give too much away, but it's a, it's a pretty intense torture scene in the basement where, where Robillard goes after Michael pretty good. And um, he had to take it to a, a really high level. And most of the guys I said, no, take it up to a 10. And they just couldn't get there uh, or they didn't, they didn't see it. And um, I, I asked Cole to do it. 
Cole got up to about a nine and I was like, man, he's so close. So I said, Cole, I talked to him in the audition. I said, go back outside and, 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 and take it up another notch and come back in and do it. So we, we saw another guy in between him. Cole comes back in and he just blew us away. Wow. And it was pretty amazing because you just saw it. You saw it. All of a sudden, it was like a transformation in the actor. Cole's an incredibly nice human being. And his character <laughs> it's is so not. strange. He's like the <laughs> nicest guy. Yeah. Yep. But he could take it to another level. And he also had this great physical appearance. My initial idea for Robillard was that he was going to be a bigger man, more hulking, and that have this physical presence over Michael. But what Cole sold me on was the look. Yes. And if you see yes. in the movie, there's these very intense, under the eyebrow, uh-huh. looking straight out looks that Cole gives that just are like daggers yeah. and they play so well for comedy, which was what really helped us out so that Cole could ride that line between um, being vicious and then also occasionally getting laughs. Well, I was curious, um, going back to kind of the narrative of the film, did you run into any, any, any obstacles with dealing with the, the concept of cannibalism in a film? Are there any things that, that tripped you up or that you might've run into that maybe you didn't expect when dealing with stuff like that? Um, well, the biggest the biggest hurdle we f- we actually faced really was I wanted the food to look appetizing, and that was a big thing for me <laughs> yeah. because my goal was like what we're talking about with these family holiday situations is you know everybody sits down and the meal it's like mom's put together the best meal of the year and everybody looks forward to it. Well, it had to look that way. We yeah. didn't want it to be like everybody's you know like uh, turkey legs you know just jawing at it because that didn't have the romance of a Christmas holiday to me. Sure. So. We had to figure out a way to make edible-looking body parts to the point where people who are in the audience would maybe go, eh, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> it would. <laughs> maybe that's not so bad. Not that they're really going to eat anything, but that it doesn't disgust them. Yeah. It disgusts them, it disgusts them on premise, yeah. but not necessarily visually. And Certainly um, the preparation process is a little yeah, more. Yeah, so the, the building of it was actually probably one of my most stressful things because I knew the leg had to look real. And I knew it had to look edible, and I knew somebody actually had to eat it. So we had to put those three things together, and basically a shot sequence that I, I wanted it to be cut on camera, I wanted it to be stabbed with a fork on camera, and I wanted it to be put in the mouth on camera. <laughs> okay. But so, nobody on set or in the crew or the cast or anybody had any they didn't like they couldn't get over this idea that the, the story they were telling was about cannibalism. No, the cast bought right in. I think they all responded really well to the script. They, they really love the tone, the fact that we balance between dark comedy and horror, yeah. and that there's that strong family thing that goes through it, and that Michael Brisket is somebody that the audience roots for. So I think even our, our villains were rooting for Michael Brisket. <laughs> yeah. It was pretty cool. No humans were harmed in the making no. of this film. Uh, Actually, though, uh, the, the, one of the ladies who does eat the meat in the movie uh, is a vegetarian in real life. Oh, no. Yeah, oh, so that, no, was, that was... So not only was she eating meat, she was eating yeah. people, yeah. allegedly. She right. did a spit take. But it's yeah. people. <laughs> <laughs> Don't eat the people. It's people. Uh, so let's talk about shooting from, from perspective. Would you mind sharing uh, like what you shot with? Any particulars that maybe were unique to your approach uh, to the shoot? Yeah, I mean, the, the thing about... Um, me getting that first chance to direct a feature. Like I said, I'd done a bunch of shorts and I've, I've worked on um, movies and TV ever since I moved to Los Angeles. And I've had a lot of experience being able to watch people work. A lot of famous directors, actually, uh, Michael Bay, uh, Joss Whedon, um, a couple other guys I can't think of off the top of my head, but um, Joe Carnahan was another one of them. Um, uh, but anyway, I got to see their process and, you know, most people don't assume that the grip standing behind them is actually inspecting and judging what they're doing, but that's right. what I was doing all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, when I got the chance to make the movie, even though we had a low budget and we didn't have very much production budget at all, uh, we got the other half of the budget for post after we shot. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, 
I knew certain things I wanted to do. I wanted to shoot two cameras. That was, I was, uh, uh, very firm about that. And I knew that in order to make the movie um, happen the way that I wanted to see it, which was a lot of different angles, we needed to shoot action the way that you, the audiences typically see action. You need two cameras. You need to be able to shoot multiple coverage at the same time uh, in order to get uh, all those quick flash second cuts in order to shoot long scenes. We did 75 setups in one day once, um, which is unheard of. That's, that's you, absurd. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, but if I hadn't had two cameras, I wouldn't have been able to do that. And then also the makeup effects, uh, we have Andy and I, I don't know if he's ever mentioned it on the show, but our, our uncle is a Oscar nominated and Emmy winning makeup artist. Nice. So we used him. He came in and did, um, our, our blood days. Um, we also had two other makeup artists that were great that did the majority of the movie. Um, but it was just, it was like I had pulled, pulled all this experience that I'd had working on sets and started utilizing it finally to make the best movie possible. And most people say when they watch it that if I tell them the budget, they can't believe that that's yeah. what we did it for. Yeah. And I think it all paid off. I mean, the 15 years it took me to get to that point. So no crazy Ridley Scott eight-camera setups. You had no, one, one what, wide if, and one coverage? If I would have had eight cameras, I would have used them. <laughs> you, wouldn't have, you wouldn't have had the room. No, I, I, I would have figured it out. Yeah, you'd have figured it out. I say this from now on. I mean, this is the technical aspect of directing that I like to talk about, but may bore people. Is that uh, I will not, never, on this, not on this show, Walt. I will never not use two cameras, ever. And if I can get three, I will. Because it just, to me, it just is how I see things. You're, you're not going to capture the magic by doing multiple takes of different coverages and, and then your wides. And, I don't right. think so. Is that, the, is that the mindset behind well, it? Well, there's two things I like. One being that continuity and editing when you have two cameras. I don't shoot cross coverage. It's very hard to shoot cross coverage because of the way lighting has to work. You stack two cameras on one person. So if I'm shooting a shot of you, I get your medium shot and your close-up in the same thing. Gotcha. Um, so that's really good. It helps the editorial process. But the other thing is if – if I'm doing a shot uh, or a scene of the two of you guys talking, there's obviously in the standard coverage, there'd be a wide shot, which is basically your two shot. And then you've got your close-up, close-up, over, over. Well, say that's six total camera angles. Now that's only three setups with two cameras instead of it being, now I'm doing six setups. Sorry. And uh, with the six setups, uh, I can cut the time in half and I can shoot more and I can spend more time developing a scene as I'm shooting. So it's a time thing for me, too. Hmm. So you're saying getting two cameras as opposed to typically you'd only have one on a project of this size? or as- Budgetarily, yeah. Right. You'd normally have one. Uh, we saved a little bit of money. I mean, we still had two camera crews, but we saved a little bit of money by the DP operated, and then I operated, and then we also had one lens package that we just split between the two cameras. Producer was free. Yeah, producer was free. <laughs> <laughs> uh, shooting reds, or are you doing DSLRs, or what are you We using? actually use the Canon... Um, uh, Mark three C three hundred Mark two. Sorry, Canon C three hundred Mark two. And we've heard, and I don't know if this is true. I never followed through with this, but that we were the first feature to ever do that. Oh wow! Really? Yeah. Huh. Okay. It looks fantastic. By yeah, the way. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, just the the everything's great in that 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 movie. Just from a directorial standpoint, the shots, everything worked out. So I assumed. Forgive me for assuming because it's the mother of all f ups according to the villain in Under Siege two. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> um, that you were using reds yeah. because it looked fantastic yeah. so i was a little bit surprised when the itunes thing came out and it, there wasn't a 4k version because like oh i thought there were reds yeah well there is a 4k version there actually. is yeah okay uh, the the thing is with reds it just costs a little bit more money yeah. so i would use reds for sure if well, we could. all that all that crazy production budget money you yeah. had i said you know yeah. again assumed. <laughs> andy where do we want to go next? okay so, what's the uh, back end of this that we want to talk about that you were involved with so it's not really what i was involved with i i like i said i've known you for a while um, yes, there is there is a the thing that I like about this movie, and we've been on record on this show about how I don't like horror movies at all, yeah, at all. But maybe because I helped with this one, I was okay to watch it. But, but we uh, went to see it, yeah. 
right. Anyways, um, he so, held my hand in the movie. I'm just saying. <laughs> Tell me about. Uh, I, we didn't grow up watching horror movies, so no. I, I, what, what drew you to to do? Like, I remember when you when you showed me the script, and you're like, "Here, read this. This is what we've been working on." I'm like, uh, "Yeah, that's good." But where did you like? I know where you got the idea from, but what what made you cho- choose to take the horror route with it and just doing like instead of just doing like a straight up comedy? I mean, yes, there's a horror element of the cannibalism stuff, but there is still the gore factor and the horror stuff that's happening in this movie that. You know, you could have just played it as comedy with just that's there. Right. Well, the thing about it is, um, for me, dark comedy is much more interesting than just straight comedy. And I think dark comedy is subversive. And I think that the thing about horror is it has the greatest platform for basically taking it and combining it with any genre you want. Yeah. You hmm. can do a drama horror, a comedy horror, an action horror. You can mix all of them together. But horror can always be sort of this through line underneath them all. And I knew um, that I wanted to really play up the dark comedy elements to it. And I thought, how can you push, push, push? Well, if you do that, you you know, and I wanted to make an action movie too. You've known that since the, the yeah, littlest we'll, we'll days get to that of my life. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, but the, the thing about horror is that um, I could push things further and further. I could put an audience into a place that I really wanted to go, which was I wanted the audience to not know where, where we were going to take them. I didn't, I wanted them to, to be unsure if they were going to laugh in the next scene or be afraid in the next scene or feel uh, emotion for Michael Brisket. Um, and, and that was really important for me. So sort of it was a tonal aspect that I wanted to achieve more so than really doing straightforward horror. Uh, but the horror platform gave me the ability to kind of play with an audience the way that I wanted to. I think you guys did a great job of finding the balance between the two. And that's a credit to you too. Um, I, like I was, there's, there's parts of this movie where like, uh, you don't know whether you're supposed to laugh or kind of be like, Oh, and like turn away. But and like, that's what we wanted. It's exactly what it works. And, um, what I know what movies you watched, but I can't think of a movie off the top of my head, like that were influencing you or maybe things that you look to, uh, that sort of helped you with the, the ba- finding the balance or things that you look for is, is from, from a t- uh, style perspective? Well, again, it wasn't horror. Um, the, the main influence on the character Michael Brisket, and Stephen and I talked about this often, is a movie called Straw Dogs with Dustin Hoffman in it. Not the remake. The remake's crap. <laughs> um, and the thing about that character that Dustin Hoffman plays is he's a nebbish um, uh, American uh, mathematician who goes to England with his new bride and moves to her hometown to work on his thesis project or his book. I can't remember. And what happens is there's these old flames in the town, these sort of English thugs that his wife used to be friends with, and they start to terrorize Dustin Hoffman. And they really do some pretty awful stuff. And by the end of the movie, you're finally, you're, you've been rooting for Dustin Hoffman to fight back through the whole movie. And by the end of the movie, he finally does. And I found myself when I walked out of that movie for the first time, uh, rooting for violence. I realized that during the process of the movie, I wanted Dustin Hoffman to hurt people. And I thought about it and I said, that's a pretty amazing thing that Sam Peckinpah pulled off because he made me feel that way, which is not in my character at all. And I thought, that's something I want to play with. So what we did with Michael Brisket is sort of that same trajectory. We wanted you to have a character like you talked about in the very beginning, Nick, that um, he's somebody you care for. So we worked very hard to that you would care for Michael Brisket. We wanted him to be a sensitive soul, somebody that had an innocence about him, a naivete, so that the audience could really feel for him. And then he's pushed, and he's hurt, and his friends are hurt, and he's put in a situation that isn't isn't anywhere near what his dream of Christmas is. Yeah, and it, and it's it's basically disaster for him. So what we wanted the audience to do was then root for Michael Brisket to fight back and to actually commit violence. This character that you see at the beginning of the movie ends up somewhere else wouldn't hurt a fly at right. the beginning but and, at the end ends and, up he would whipping hurt. ass yeah <laughs> so, <laughs> to say the least we you know and that was a goal of ours and i think we pulled that off and that's a credit to steven really i mean he made you care about that character 
Now, so there's an interesting shot where he's wearing another one of the characters as a backpack. Sure. Uh, at the end, without giving much more away. Yes. Uh, you know, the tricky part of that was without giving the spoiler of why he was on his back mm -hmm. but did was that real did you how did you lash him to his back so that that's 100 percent real yeah oh, man 100 real that's another uh you know problem with the budget situation um but what we did is we spent some of our money on which was more than i would have liked to but we had to a true double stunt harness it had to be made for us we went to you know, luckily we live in Los Angeles. We went to a company that makes those jerk vests that stuntmen uh, wear that, yeah. you know, you see them hooked to wires and it's under their clothes and these, they, the vests have to be incredibly tight. There can be no air between their body and the vest or they, or it messes them up. So they had to be fitted to Steven and the other actor. And then they were uh, put together. And then the clothes of each of their wardrobes uh, were fit with holes where we could then bind the two of them together. So Steven is literally carrying him in every shot you see. That's yeah. no joke. And uh, I, I was lucky enough, and we're going to get to this now. The the big the big scene that, that everybody talks about, I know the one that you were looking forward to making the most, and, and I was there, I think, for the, the entire shooting of that process and watching that all come together was amazing. The big fight yes. at the end. Um, and well, we're not ruining anything. There's a big, what, seven minutes? Seven minutes. Seven of minutes of just a, just a full-on slobber knocker in this house between all of these characters, and it's, it's so fun, so... Uh, guttural um, but yes uh, during this fight sequence DJ was strapped to Steven's back and I remember being there that we would have to like like we would have to give him breaks like yeah. he's literally carrying a 130 40 pound guy on his back mm -hmm. for certain parts of his, and we're crawling on the floor with this guy literally attached him on his back wow. yeah and, and he it, would, it was like a process too it would take us like 10 to 15 minutes to get these guys all like synced into it and mm -hmm. put their and then put the the lights around him and all this stuff and yeah, uh, it was. And then we had to, they would have an apple box, which um, is just basically a rectangular piece of wood that we'd put between the two of them so they could sit down because at certain times we couldn't take them out of the harness. <laughs> yeah, right. It's like, okay, because we'd be like, okay, we're going to shoot this one, pick up real quick, but by the time we take you out, we'll need you again. So we'd keep them in it. And they were both really good about it. You know, yeah. the, Steven definitely had the physical side of that because uh, he was carrying him. But the other problem DJ had is DJ. Um, had a had a bit of a stressed out situation at one point because he could never be free. He's literally going wherever Steven takes him. And and they would be in that harness for quite some time. I, I would say there were points where it was close to 20 minutes. And um, if not longer, they'd probably tell me I did it even longer. You, you, but uh, I'll, I'll tell you you did yeah. it longer. But, you know. Well, how do you deal with, like, pee breaks and stuff like that? Well, that the we would The simple let things out. nobody thinks about. Then so. we would let him out. Oh, okay. But, uh, you know, to think about the fact that you're just being carried around and you have no choice in anything you're doing, you know. Wow. That's pretty mental if you really dig into yeah, that. Yeah. So just to give the audience a, an idea of the seven minutes of the fight sequence, which included some special effect shots. What did that take us? Three days? Yeah, it was two and a half. It was scheduled for two. And then we added about another half day. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, um, there's a little bit of the outside stuff. So overall, it's probably about three, but days. all that stuff in the kitchen and the, and the, and the, the living room and in the, in the, the, the TV room, that was all two and a half days, I think. Yeah. Right. And that was an interesting thing too. When you get into a budget situation, something you have to balance is the fact that you only have a certain limited number of days. And we had initially scheduled about 18 days to do it. And when I um, had the very first meeting on schedule, I said, we're going to use uh, at least two days for this fight. And they were look, everybody looked at me like I was crazy. You know, I'm taking two days completely out of the budget for a shorter amount of screen time. And I said, trust me, when you see this, yeah. see what I'm trying to do, you'll understand. And, and it's, it's the turning point of the movie. It has to be big. Oh, it has to be. And I, we wanted it. We wanted the audience to be up on their feet in essence, at the end of the movie saying, we want Michael, we, you know, like cheering for him and, and, and you had to do something big in order for that to happen. Well, there's two big things I want to talk about here at the end. Now that we're, we're past the film one, 
being an independent filmmaker in the process from beginning to end of getting that done, finding funding, uh, cast and crew selection process, timeline that, that, that you went through with that. And then the second big thing is kind of what happens when you're done? What happens when final edit is, is, is set? What, what happens then? You get the festivals and you get other kinds of things going on there. So how does distribution work? How like, you know, let's let me just start at the beginning. Yeah. Like from, from co- how long did you spend making this from, from concept, beginning? from concept to now concept? Uh, like I said, was when Beth and I first got married, which was in 2009, but we finished the screenplay in 2010 and we didn't start shooting until December, 2015. And the reason for that was we, we tried numerous ways to get the money to make the movie. I would say the original script for the movie was a million dollar at least budget. Mm-hmm. We didn't shoot it for anywhere near that. Okay. <laughs> so we had to do a bunch of rewrites to get it down. But we tried different things. We tried selling the script at one point without us or without me attached as a director, which would have been awful. I'm glad that didn't ever <laughs> pan out. Um, we tried uh, making the short that I told you about to try to raise money. Um, was that and- successful in your eyes? Uh, is it worth the effort? So for any uh, you know potential future director, wannabe directors that are out there, is making a short or a trailer uh, of, of sorts to, in order to garner funding I don't opportunities? Think so. No? <laughs> I mean, I, I wouldn't say don't do it. I would say the thing that it did, I, it helped prove that we could pull off the tone, which is in this movie, you know, the black comedy versus horror. Uh, so that was helpful, and it helped people believe in the next short we did. So that got us there. And I think the last short we did helped people even further in the movie. So it almost just helped in the chain reaction of things. But as far as turning, making it, you know, immediately after the short, we're going to let you do the feature. That didn't happen because you really have to do something like the fight at the end of the movie to say, you have to go big on these two scenes. And we did, we did a capture scene and a dramatic scene. And I think in order to really get people into it and to say, yeah, I want to do it, you have to pick scenes that would cost a ton of money to shoot anyway. Right. Yeah. So then at that point, what's the balance? Like, hey, you put $20,000 into a short film, but save the $20,000 and start as your nest egg for the movie. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's kind of this weird balance. Um, as far as the distribution aspects of things, you know, we finished the edit on October 2016. And from that point on, we immediately turned into trying to figure out what to do next. So we started the festival run. Uh, we got into a few festivals, but um, didn't which get is it. not free to be no, clear. It's not free. everyone you submit to. There's a fee involved. There's travel. There's mm-hmm. all kinds of, and you're taking your cast members too yeah. most times. So yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, that's true. That's very true. Everything is money. Everything in the movie <laughs> is money. Um, but the the timeline of 2017 was basically Beth and I trying to figure out how to get this movie to the most people possible. So the initial idea was, you know, festival would just get into some big festival and everything would be great. And we didn't get into big festivals. And we started to learn from the um, people we were talking to that, you know, Sundance is not hey, we find the coolest new movie and we just pick people that nobody's ever seen. There's entire campaigns that go on behind the scenes at Sundance that get people into Sundance. And if you look at the slate of Sundance, there's famous people in almost every movie right, at Sundance. Right, right. It's, when they say independent movie, it just means that Paramount or Fox or Universal didn't make the movie. <laughs> it doesn't mean that, that there wasn't millions of dollars behind the movie. Sure. Um, you know, and it's not really sour grapes. It's just one of the things that it was like, that's the process we found out. So then we we shifted gears and said, let's go horror. And we did a lot better in the horror festivals. We got into a bunch of horror festivals, which was great. And that sort of created a press buzz about us. People started to understand that there was a movie out there that's going to be unique and different. Uh, and about June, um, we had uh, the trailer and, and we'd been talking to distribution companies by just cold calling. 
and Beth uh, sent the trailer out, and we had about four different offers uh, based on the trailer, and then they watched the movie. And this company called Gravitas Ventures liked the movie, and, and they're really a substantial distribution company. Yeah, they are. And uh, we signed with them because they had the best feeling for us. And they handle our domestic distribution. And um, we have another company that handles international. And Talk about that. That's, okay. a, that's interesting from a little bit you've told me. Yes. Yeah, so the international we got um, came to us because we opened a big Los Angeles horror film festival here called Shriek Fest. Mm-hmm. We were the opening night movie. And uh, we were on their website. And it was put up as, hey, this is Mercy Christmas. It's about to sell out. There's this the opening night movie. It's one of the ones we really enjoy. Um, and... Uh, this company in Italy called Devil Works, which is an international sales agent, um, found that and said, you know, let's check this movie out. So they they contacted us and we sent them the movie and they loved it. And they're a, a, a boutique company that handles cross-genre movies. They like horror movies with comedy or, you know, a drama that goes in a bizarre, wacky way. That's what they like to deal Kinda with. Kind of like what you were describing earlier with horror mixed with some other yep. genre. Yeah, exactly. That's what their specialty is. Um, so we felt really comfortable with them. We ended up meeting them. They came to town for a different film market in November. We met with them. We really loved them. And coming, uh, February, 2018 in Berlin, there's a market called the European film market that happens during the Berlin film festival. And at that time, they're going to start selling mercy Christmas internationally, which is, yeah, which is, I don't know how much you want me to get into this, but there's a whole lot of stuff that involves that, which is basically, you know, they go to each territory. They have these meetings in, like, say, Germany, and they try to sell to a distribution company in Germany, then Austria, then France, then England. Well, my, my big, my, sorry, my big takeaway thing from the international portion, um, domestically, we're in a mad rush to try and make sure we get the word out and get everything uh, and get as much uh, buzz and focus on the movie as, as we approach Christmas. Because you're in, in your opinion and in most opinions, once Christmas is over, people aren't going to watch a Christmas movie anymore, potentially. But... I, I disagree with that to a degree, but um, internationally, well, not in mass, right? Least. But internationally, you throw all, uh, that all the window, right? That yeah, rule? that's the first thing they told us. This which is, was this is interesting, which was really like surprising to Beth and I. They, you know, they said, "Well, and we knew this from the very beginning." Everybody said domestically, you're going to be released one year, and the following year, it happens internationally. It's not like a studio movie where they they do it at the same time or they yeah. release Japan in advance. With the independent movies, they always do domestic first, and the reason they do that is because they're a big fear of pirating. Internationally, it doesn't affect them uh, as much. Yeah. I, I didn't even think about that, but yeah. it makes so much sense. Yeah. So what they told us is, obviously, we're not going to come out internationally until uh, Christmas of 2018. Beth and I were well aware of that. We're fine with that. And they're like, Europe loves Christmas movies. Don't worry about 2018. Uh, at the end of the year, Europe's going to eat you up. And we're like, okay, so we'll wait until the end of 2018. And they go, well, you know what? That's not all of it because uh, Vietnam, Malaysia, uh, China, a lot of the Southeastern Asian countries, they don't give a crap about Christmas. They don't even celebrate Christmas. What they're going to like about your movie is the horror part and the cannibal part. So there's a good chance they, they, they even use these words that we're going to be in a movie theater in Vietnam in April. <laughs> <laughs> yes! Yeah. So, so, Hey, you know, I may go to Vietnam to check out mercy Christmas. I, in I a better theater. see a tweet that <laughs> says mercy Christmas is now available in Vietnam yeah. in April. Yeah. That's like one of those things we always joke about, like number one Christmas cannibal movie in Vietnam this week. Like, yeah. Yeah. The, like exactly. <laughs> uh, going back to the domestic thing really quickly, um, I want to make sure that we don't mislead the listeners in a sense of like you're not all of a sudden like this overnight multimillionaire because no. you made your little movie, right? No. What does it really mean to get distribution as a filmmaker, as an independent filmmaker? Well, it's a bit of a math problem, but basically what it is is um, they don't hand you a check. Right. If I had... Uh, some actor in it that was uh, famous or semi-famous, there would probably be a little bit of a check involved. 
uh, and it still wouldn't have been enough to pay the movie back. It may be something like 50 grand. Here's 50 grand. We'll, we're going to secure your rights because we want to make sure you're on our platform. Uh, what happens with us is they get it as they get the movie. They get 25% of the sales of the movie. We don't get the other 75% because if you think about it this way, iTunes gets a cut. So how this works is say there's a dollar spent on the movie. iTunes gets their cut. Gravitas Venture gets their cut. And then Beth and I get our cut. So it all comes down backwards. But Beth and I don't get the cut. We have to pay back the people who put the money into the movie. Right. So if ever Beth and I are walking around with gold chains, it'll be way down the line. You know, like <laughs> there's a lot of people, there's a lot of debt on the movie. There's a lot of people that are owed money for the movie. And then obviously, you know, Gravitas, iTunes, Amazon, Netflix, uh, everybody takes their cut. But you have, but the different, you also have full ownership of the movie though. That's a big thing. That is the complete unique aspect of what Beth and I did with all the contracts. Everything we did is under, we had a uh, lawyer, uh, you know, design everything, every contract we did. Um, and Beth and I own completely the movie, just the two of us. Um, even the people that invested in the movie don't own the movie. What they did is they invested in the movie in order to get a percentage of profit. Yeah. But that's all they get. It's almost like a, a loan of sorts. In the- essence, but they also, you know, there's there's a huge interest rate because if hypothetically the movie does huge, they get more money. Yeah. Um, but that they were taking a bet. They were yeah. they were taking a risk on on you guys. Exactly. Yeah. And and they did that. A lot of that is friends and family money, and they did that because they had faith in Beth and I, which is something that you know we're indebted for life on. Um, but a lot of it too is that that gave us the 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 pressure and also the urgency that Beth and I had to make a good movie, and that's why we fought for two straight years to make the best movie possible, and why everything had to be perfect. There's a number of visual effects shots in the movie. I think there's around 47 shots or something like that in the movie. And I went through frame by frame while those guys were sending me things. And I would say, nope, that has to be shaved off. Or, you know, I saw a flash of blue in one frame. Got to be taken out. And, you know, I did that for every process of every moment of the movie because I knew it had to be perfect or as best as we could make it for the amount of money we had. And that's because you feel that pressure with the people that invested in you and that believed in you. Not only because I wanted to make a good movie, but because I wanted to make sure that I gave them the best product possible and that sure. I, I didn't quit on it. No, oh, that's a good point. I feel like we've covered everything. I, I just want to point out that uh, it was fun for me, obviously, to to watch this whole pro- uh, project come to fruition. You know, and I've said a number of times in the show how proud I am of you and, yes, and Beth you. and, and proud yes, to have been a part of it. thank you guys for both pitching the movie so much. It was a fun sort of thing as your brother to watch, like like literally to walk onto that set and you're in the and you're in the room where the table was. It was like walking into our house when we I were know. kids. And so there's that there's that fun connection for me to watch it and sort of feel like, yeah, this is what would happen if like we were cannibals when we were kids. Yeah. You know, that was the idea. But, but uh, yeah, and I think you guys saw that well. Before you go, I do want to hear um, now that this is sort of in motion and again, everybody can go find this on any video on demand platform. Um, what's next for you guys? Well, um, there's two things going on right now. Um, Beth and I are working on our next screenplay, which is called Margot Lives. And we want to shoot it in the fall of 2018. Hopefully, if we can pull all the things together. And it's about the opiate crisis that's going on in Ohio. And it takes place back in our hometown. Not the actual city, but in the area of southern Ohio where Andy and I grew up, which is basically ground zero for where this crisis is. Um, In real life, which is crazy. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Um, and it's been really bothering me. I've been reading a lot about it and, um, we have this story idea and we we're working on that and it's like an action movie with a little bit of the dark comedy. It's not as much comedy because it's a drug situation. Right. Can't really just poke around and have fun are you, with it. Are you thinking in the, in the same vein as a train spotting or something like that? It's not, it's, uh, it's more like a vigilante movie. Oh, okay. It's a mom who, uh, a working mother who is in the PTA and has to take care of her family. And at the same time, she's going out at night and busting the heads of drug dealers. <laughs> Love it. 
Wow. Okay. Yeah. So isn't Bruce Willis doing a similar project to this? Not drug related, but Death Wish. Death, yeah. The yeah. remake of Death Wish. Yeah. 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 Oh man! So you're doing that with with drugs and with a working mom. Oh man! Okay. Yeah. I'm in. Yeah. Well, I want to I want to close out by saying first and foremost, thank you for joining us and thanks yep. for coming in. Um, I have no stakes in this, so I'd be the first one to tell you exactly what I thought about the movie if I didn't like it. But I remember going to the it was the Real Independent Festival screening mm-hmm. a few months ago and absolutely loved it. I walked out of there and immediately wanted to turn around and go see it again. Thank you. So fantastic job. Um, it was interesting that you got so much into such a short running time. And I think that's always something that is a standout thing for films and for filmmakers is it felt like a good two hour story and it was 79 minutes. Yeah. Think, something well, like that. Of picture. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So kudos. Congratulations yeah, to you, you, Beth, Tarquin, everybody, uh, Stephen and Cole, everybody is part of the cast and crew. I think it was a fantastic film. If you guys have not seen Mercy Christmas yet, and you've been listening to me and Andy tell you to go watch it. First of all, clap on the wrist. Uh, Twelve bucks on iTunes. Go leave reviews. Tell tell Ryan and Beth exactly what you think about the film. Yeah, we want to hear. Yeah, and and support uh, support independent independent filmmaking because it is a big deal. There's a lot of people out here in LA trying to get their projects made, and when the really good ones come out. We have to really let that cream rise to the top and, and make them shine. So. For sure. And yes. I've been listening to you guys, and you know, you guys say it in a couple different episodes that you know you're very supportive of independent film and original ideas, and I think that's that's awesome. That's badass. And Thank con- you. congratulations on this show and Orbital Jigsaw. It's badass that you guys put this together. And Thank you very much. What, what is this? Fifty eight episodes. Fifty nine. Fifty nine. Something like that. Yeah. It's phenomenal. We started it started it back up in August of twenty sixteen. Well, I mean, so. you've been a silent audience and helping us sort of steer things along the way. So we yeah. appreciate your uh, your help and your feedback yeah. too. It's, so well, you guys did it. This is a phenomenal show. I love this show. Thank you. Thanks. Well, hey, thanks for joining us, Ryan, and uh, hope to have you back on here soon, or maybe another project we may be putting together. Hint, hint. Wink, oh, wink. what? What? We haven't even told him about this, but Ooh. I think he's going to like it. Yeah, guys, and uh, thanks for having me, and Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Happy New Year. Yep, and try not to eat anyone else's ribs. (laughs) (laughs) That was awesome. Nick, how was your week? Well, uh, of course, we saw Last Jedi uh, last Thursday, which uh, we talked about in detail over on another episode full of spoilers. Check that out. Overall, I will definitely say that I I enjoyed it as an additional chapter of the overall work of the entire Star Wars Legacy. Yes. I'll leave it at that. You guys can go check out the review. Uh, One thing I also watched that was a little bit more obscure that was out of my normal realm of things was the Lady Gaga biography on Netflix. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, I'm genuinely impressed by people that have the careers at early ages like she has. Um, And for the record, I believe she just turned 30. So all of her crazy pop stuff happened when she was like 21, 22. Kidding. Um, And the the story of the the documentary and the biopic is that it's it's literally follows her around throughout the craziness. Literally 24 hours a day, someone is touching her and doing her hair and putting her clothes on and doing all this crazy (laughs) stuff. And it's it's maddening. I cannot even begin to put myself in the shoes of having to have all of that kind of stuff going on. And it just it exposes a lot of the um, the the emotional struggles that you go through. It was, it, it was fascinating to watch. I I guess I'll have to check it out. Yeah, culminating in that massive Super Bowl performance we got earlier this year. So uh, really fantastic. You guys should go check it out. Um, it's really good. The other one that I have to mention is a shout out to Gary Oldman. I did. I have seen Churchill, the Brian Cox version that you talked about earlier this year. I have talked about on this show, but I did finally go see The Darkest Hour, 
or get to see that. So to compare the two, uh, Gary Oldman's performance is going to wipe the individual awards across this season. Okay. Be ready for it. Uh, it was that good. The makeup effects were fantastic. The movie was, eh, okay. It was <laughs> different. It was the more of the, the setup to what the events of Dunkirk versus the Brian Cox version, which was more centered around D-Day. Interesting. Okay. So it was interesting to see both of those, how they both played. There were a lot of similarities in the portrayal, uh, but a lot of differences as well. So that was uh, that was kind of my last week. A lot of movies are, are getting consumed, and as things wind down here for the holidays, or wind up, depending on how you look at it, um, I'm hoping to ingest a lot more of those. How about you, Andy? What'd you get into? Well, the uh, Amazon boxes are piling up in my house uh, <laughs> as the Christmas gifts uh, uh, filter in. Um, I was able to um, go see Last Jedi with you. Um, my take on that was very similar to yours. I really enjoyed it the first time I saw it. Uh, but I did go see it a second time, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, yesterday, I had the the pleasure of going to the Directors Guild for a bit of a double bill. Ooh! So uh, I went with uh, our buddy Brad um, at four o'clock yesterday, and I went and saw The Post, the new Spielberg movie. I've heard uh, that is getting rave reviews. It by the way, is so good. Okay, and it was amazing to see in that space. Um, the movie is fantastic. You would think a movie about uh, the newspaper is dumb, but it, when you hear like what the the story is, this is about the Pentagon Papers and them finding and there was this big um, uh, trouble with the New York Times and the, and the Washington Post about whether they would print something. And it's it's this amazing story. Uh, Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep will will certainly be up for actor or actress in the Oscar race. The Post is already up for uh, Best Picture in the Golden Globe, so I'm sure it'll be up for Best Picture when it comes time for the Oscar season. The cool thing about seeing it at the DGA was we got to have a little Q&A afterwards, moderated by Patty Jenkins of Wonder Woman fame, right. and she spoke with Mr. Spielberg himself. Wow. So we got to, we got to get about 25, 30 minutes of, of Spielberg talking about the movie and what it took to make it. Here's the big takeaway from that. Uh, he read the script. Get this. He read the script in February. Of this year? Read it in February, and in nine months, it's in theaters. What? Yes. In the, at the same time he's That's in, impossible. Yes, at the same time he's in post on Ready Player One. <laughs> Unbelievable, this guy. We've talked about Spielberg in our in our past episode. I can't tell you what number that is, but go back and look if you're if you're curious about him. If you didn't already know about a bunch of stuff, go back and listen to, to what we uh, heard in the Spielberg documentary. Just seeing him again in the same room, like he came out when it was over, the entire theater of 500 people stood up and gave him a standing ovation. Nice. He was very gracious. Patty Jenkins, who was doing the interview with him, was obviously flustered to be talking to him, but uh, he was As anyone would, yeah. Be. But he was like very respectful of like her and like Wonder Woman, and the and, and this movie also has a bit of like uh, female power. And uh, he said that when he read it, uh, considering what's going on with uh, the administration versus the press in our current. Um, uh, a political situation uh, he felt like he had to make this movie and make a statement and it certainly does that so um, I can't recommend this movie enough uh, I couldn't I, I wouldn't be surprised if it if it wins best picture or something um, definitely Tom Hanks or I think Streep will win like Oscar number 9000 or whatever she'll win um, so then that movie ends and I went back out in the lobby and my brother was there who we just talked to uh, and he had not seen last Jedi yet so then I went and watched it the second time and we enjoyed it uh whether or not he enjoyed it, I don't know. He's going to tell me, like, yeah, it was great. But, you know, he, he's much more critical of these Star Wars movies than I am because he's not the major fan that I am. But, <laughs> but the big takeaway for this was because we were at the DGA, there was a Q&A afterwards with Ryan Johnson, moderated by Spike Jones. What? Yeah. Yes. This is this is what the, a night. I know the perks of like being in the industry and stuff. It's great. Right. So the big takeaway from this was, which we talked about also in our last Jedi um, review, was that Ryan Johnson told us that. 
uh, there was no like overall through line. So when JJ wrote the first script with, with um, uh, Lawrence Kasdan, they didn't have like an overarching, like here's what's going to happen to these people from seven, eight to nine. They just wrote seven and, and sort of handed a baton off. And Ryan Johnson wrote the script for force awake or for last Jedi as they were shooting force Awakens. So he wrote it without seeing a finished cut of it. Damn. Which might explain some of the things that we may have had some issues with. So you should yeah. go back and listen to that. Um, but that was like a really cool like thing to be a part of. He told a story about, um, uh, uh, I can't even tell you about this cause it would be a spoiler. So I won't tell you that story. Okay. Um, the other thing was when my kids are big into the movie home alone right now, they just love that the, this little kid sets traps for the bad guys. Yeah. Right. So when we bought home alone on iTunes, it was like a bundle deal. So you get home alone too as well. And so the girl's like, we want to watch home alone too. I'm like, okay, let's watch it. It's terrible. It's it's bad. Terrible. It's really and bad. Kevin McAllister, that character is like a jerk in it, and like yep. he's really mean, and it's mean spirited, and and like the the hotel people like break into his room and like try to find it, like <laughs> stuff that would like never happen. Oh, so Home Alone two, don't watch it. Uh, Merry Christmas. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, there you go. Um, uh, I'm of the age now where Bad Santa is my go to Christmas you, movie. So Scrooge is always my favorite. Oh man, he can't go wrong with Christmas with the Cranks. Yep, uh, good Tim Tim Allen and Jamie Lee Curtis. So that's always good as well. So uh, do we want to give any kind of recap here of our Less Jedi thing, or just do we just want to tell people I, to I think go we, see the movie and, and listen yeah, I to think our? We did it. I think we did it. I, I think we're both we're both happy with it. We have some issues with it, but. I mean, if you really want to know what we think about it, go listen to that other episode. Yeah, there's but, a whole make hour sure you, of us over there geeking out about Star Wars. Yeah, so. just make sure you've seen it first. Yeah, it is, it is filled with spoilers through and through. So do not listen until you've seen the film yet. But Andy, I think it's time for some quick hits. Well, speaking of Mr. Spielberg, happy birthday! Yay! Today is Steven Spielberg's 71st birthday. What a life and career that man has had. Yeah, happy birthday to him. Thank you for everything you've done. You're basically the reason I'm here. I know you're not listening, but I did walk past your office today on the Universal <laughs> lot. That was kind of cool. And as Andy mentioned before, please go back and listen to our recent review of the documentary film Spielberg about his life. Uh, what else, Andy? What else we got going so, on? So uh, one of the trailers that came out this week, and it was actually attached to Last Jedi that we saw on Thursday night, um, your hero, he's James. I can't even do it justice. You do it. I, I, I'm not going to do it for this film. Okay, fine. This, this looks terrible. Really? Oh, okay. It, this so, looks bad. Okay, so Alita, Battle Angel. If you've yeah. not seen this trailer, this to me looks like um, uh, a combination of real actors acting with CGI. For the first time, we haven't really seen like a CGI that looks true. So... The story is it's some sort of something that, that Cameron was going to do and uh, Robert Rodriguez was kind of interested in the same property and, and Cameron, I think, said, I got too much to do with going down to search the uh, Titanic and t- like 10,000 Avatar movies, so why don't you direct it and I'll just put my name on it. And we get this trailer. Um, I thought it's amazing. I'm really excited to see this movie that's coming out next summer. I can't do the trailer justice by telling you about it. You just need to see this trailer for yourself. Uh, I, I'm going to reserve judgment as best as I can being the James Cameron fan that I am uh, on seeing the film first before I, because based on the trailer, not interested. He didn't direct it, but you have gone on record and said he could make a movie about like a dude selling soap and you would watch it. I, I would. I didn't say that about Robert Rodriguez though. Okay. Fair to enough. Be fair. Fair enough. Uh, it's also news this week that Kurt Russell, Kurt Russell Snake Plissken himself is going to play Santa Claus. Perfect. In an upcoming, will he wear the eye patch? That's all I want to know. In an upcoming <laughs> movie on Netflix, Andy, what is this about? So I've, I read that. Well, first of all, Kurt Russell with a beard. We've already seen it. Yes. In Guardians of the Galaxy Two, 
He's got the look. He just he, hasn't shaved the beard. He's yet. got the look. He's got the charisma. Yeah. He could be Santa. Apparently, this is something about some kids don't believe that Santa Claus exists, and they do something to like derail him, and he crashes somewhere in Chicago, and they have to help him be Santa again. Oh boy. Love it. Love the idea. And Kurt Russell as Santa, I'm in. I, I could just, come on, kids. Just him, see him yelling at him. Just, it's going to be, I'll enjoy it. It's uh, coming to Netflix, but here's the thing. Uh, speaking of Netflix, Sean Levy, who is the brain or the, the big-time producer that got Stranger Things off the ground, um, he has signed a four-year, seven-figure deal with Netflix to do, I don't know, Stranger Things season three, but I guess four. I guess he's got they've got like a first look deal with him. Um, everything that guy touches is gold at yeah. this point. Like all the Night of the Museum movies, uh, he did Real Steel. So um, he's he's not directing as much as he used to. He's more of like a producerial role, but uh, he's a he's a big time name. And to get that guy locked in for four years for when they're trying to generate content, not a bad choice. The Netflix movie studio continues to grow. Yes, harnessing someone of that caliber for a four year seven figure deal, big big deal. Ah, uh, let's see. Ryan Reynolds has signed up to play. Oh God! Yeah, this is. I this. Just, I want to go kick Ryan Reynolds' agent in the balls. No, 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 no. I think you're not. You're uh, not thinking about this. This this falls under the WTF category. Yes. Right. Ryan Reynolds is going to play another major character in a movie. Not Deadpool. Not Green Lantern. He's going to play Pikachu Pika, in a Pika. live action Pikachu movie. And we think that's stupid and that's crazy. But then you have to really think about. The royalty checks that'll come from playing Pikachu and just voicing him. This guy has made so many bad movie decisions in his career. Except Deadpool. Except Deadpool. And to his credit, it's the one thing that he personally has masterminded and seen through. Uh, If this is a money grab and you're willing to be honest about it, okay. Yeah. I'm out fine. Maybe he's a Nintendo fan. We don't know him. Maybe. I don't know. But Ryan... Dude, Hitman's Bodyguard was a lot of fun. I want to see you making those kind of kind of stuff. And yeah, granted, maybe they're kind of the straight to DVD kind of stuff that, frankly, I miss. Yeah, uh, you know, if you look at the Seagal saga and stuff like that, that I want to see those kind of movies, action, fun, body cop movies. Pikachu, really, dude? My kids will like it. Um, one last one that is right up your alley, my friend, Sir Ian McKellen. Yeah, Sir Ian McKellen says. That he would gladly play Gandalf again if the Amazon series calls him, but they haven't called him yet. He hasn't Why been not? asked yet. He hasn't been asked yet. Maybe he's uh, too expensive. I don't know. I what don't do you know. think? Maybe they need to put the drone delivery money into <laughs> some kind of sorcery. <laughs> you yeah. shall not pass. Nice. Uh, nice. We just, thought of it at the same time. Uh, Very well done, sir. It, it just it, listen, Jeff Bezos. Get off your ass. Make this shit happen. Yeah. Because if what I'm hearing is true, the Amazon series that's being developed is based on them finally getting the rights to the Cimmerillion, which is the big preface to wherever we got to in Lord of the Rings, which is a lot of backstory around Gandalf. You have to get him. Oh, please, please go get Sir Ian McKellen. He'd probably do it for pretty cheap. Yeah. You know, you wouldn't spend a lot. And you're swimming in money, Scrooge McBezos. <laughs> it's not like you need any more money. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He has all the money. Yeah. I, I have Amazon Prime. Spend that money. <laughs> Mine's renewing next month. So all I know right. there's another hundred bucks. There's my hundred bucks. Use my Amazon Prime for, for that. Um, anyway, so I wanted to kind of close this out with um, some happy holidays, first yes. and foremost, yes. to everybody out there. 
Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, whatever it is you celebrate. Uh, it is the season for family. It's for loving and forgiving and all of those things. We forget about all the other heinous shit that has gone down throughout the course of 2017. And it's been a lot. And there has been a lot. For sure. Um, but let's focus on that. In another more kind of somber note, there are some things that are growing and changing and exciting kind of things happening right now around both Andy and myself. And we have decided, based on schedules and timelines and things like that, some new projects that are firing up, some new work requirements uh, that are firing up for the both of us to take a bit of a break. So we wanted to kind of sign off 2017 here in the holidays with saying, it's not goodbye, but we'll see you later. Yep. Uh, When... We don't know yet, but we will. We would like to pop in here and there, so please stay subscribed. Of course. We'll surprise you here and there with some quick jump-ins and just say hi to everybody, but we got to go do some stuff Yes, for a few months. Got to pay the bills. Got to pay the bills. Got to uh, develop some new projects, some new news that Andy can't really talk about yet, but uh, hopefully we'll be able to soon. We do know that you're... Now we can talk about it. Yep, better late than never. Yeah, better late than never. January 1st. You can watch it. It's yes. amazing. I was in Europe for all those months. But now you can Captain see why. Cuck himself. Yep. Oh, I can't wait to see it again. First season was so much fun. Uh, but that was your trip to Europe. Yeah, as we now talked you'll about know why. The, the, the first episode premiered last week. You get to see it. Uh, you can watch it on NBC.com right now. Uh, it'll be on weekly um, yeah, we're, we're not going away. Um, we're going to drop in. Like he said, we just don't know when our goal is to try and drop in twice a month if we can between now and the next couple months. So we're still going to be there. Um, but here's the thing. Um, we, we appreciate everybody that's, that's been on board with us for these last 18 months. And it's been a really special thing to, to get out and tell you about the things that we like, the things that you like and talk about them and jive on them and all that stuff. So I will say this, and we haven't done it yet, but uh, this week uh, we will give a, a certain thing to our audience who is more important to us than anything because we don't do it just for ourselves. We do this for you. So you audience, I will give you and Nick will give you the Stone Cold Salute. I said give me a hell yeah. Oh, I'm glad I finally got to crack that. I was starting to get thirsty there while we were going on those little monologues. But, uh, hey, that's it for us this week and for 2017. Yes, right? Merry Christmas to you, my friend. Merry Christmas to you, Andy. And to all of the listeners out there, again, happy holidays. Hug your parents. Tell them you love them. Hug your kids, all that good stuff. Spend some time doing that and maybe not so much time podcasting for those of us that are out there, podcast fellow podcasters. But, uh yeah, we'd love to hear your feedback on 2017. We're not going anywhere. We still want to hear all that stuff. We are still going to be active over on our Facebook page and our Twitter account. Yep. So come over and hang out with us. Just search for Concession Stand on Facebook. You'll find the Orange Popcorn Man there. Or hit us up on Twitter at Concession Stand. And if any of you are doing any last-minute shopping here and need some stocking stuffers or something like that, head over to orbitaljigsaw.com slash store where you'll find merchandise for our show and for all of the other shows on the Orbital Jigsaw Network to sneak in as last-minute gifts and to rep the show. Yes. But I'm Nick Howell. You can find me over on Twitter at Data Center Dude. And I'm Andy Nelson. You can find me at Andy Nelson 76 also on Twitter. But until we see you again... Later. Bye. This show is part of the Orbital Jigsaw Network. For more episodes, subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher Radio. For details and show notes from each episode, check us out. OrbitalJigsaw.com.